Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and as a family, we seek to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our community. We hope you'll subscribe. Our scripture reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man, lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Amen. Thank thank you, Hudson and Catherine. Thank you, guys. Thank you, youth, for for leading us today. Uh, Happy Reformation Sunday this morning. We are wrapping up our series on our vision and mission statements. This is the last week where we're doing that. We've been doing this, though, because we wanted to go into our values. We wanted to look at the uh, things in our life when it comes to our church, when it comes to our values. What are we willing to suffer for? What are we willing to to stake our lives on? What are the principles that motivate us, that move us, that uh, get into our imaginations and and change us? And so the question we've been asking is, is our vision statement, right? To joyfully live as reflections of God's love together. What does that look like? How does that look? What what does that look like in our life? Um, Our missional statements tell us how. How are we going to do that? We're going to do that by being a church that and that's not just for ourselves, but for others. How are we going to do that? We're going to be a church where we're known, loved, and cared for. And then our last missional statement we're looking at today that we've had since we've opened our doors a few years ago is that we are a church that values questions and those who ask them. Jeff brought that up earlier. We bring it up at the beginning of every service. It's why we text in questions. It's why we, we have this posture. But we really haven't... These are just words on a piece of paper. Unless we make them real to us, they mean nothing. And so that's what we're doing today. Let's look at this passage here in, in Matthew, because it, I think what it does is it, it unpacks this statement for us. We're going to look at this in three, in three ways. One, how does it look like to be driven to value questions and those who ask them? Two, by radically being countercultural. And then three, fueled by forgiveness. And those, obviously those things flow together, but they all go together. They're all in this passage. What does it look like to be driven to value questions and those who ask them? Secondly, by being radically countercultural. And then thirdly, fueled by forgiveness. So first, what does it mean to be driven to value questions and those who ask them? Look in our text. This is Matthew 9. Jesus, as we're told here, stepped into a boat, crossed over in verse 1, came to his own town. By the way, this account is in Mark, it's in Luke, and what we find in those passages is that this all happened inside a house. 
And in this house, uh, Jesus is in there, he's preaching, he's talking, he's teaching, and what we're told is some men, verse 2, bring a paralyzed man. This, these are friends that bring their friend to this house. And they show up, and Jesus is in this house, and, you know, there's, there's packed homes, and then there's the homes where you, you, they're, they're so packed with people. Maybe you haven't been in a home this packed, but imagine a home that's so packed that the light from the windows can't even get in because everybody has crammed in there. And they show up with this man who's paralyzed. He's on this mat, and there is no way in. There is no way they're going to be able to get inside. Where a lot of people would have said, you know what? This is it. Let's just go home. These men did not do that. What they did was, uh, homes back then, a lot of times they had staircases that go up to the roof. And, they, and on the top of the roof, it's actually flat. Because a lot of uh, people, at nighttime, it cooled down. And people would go up to, to the roof to, to, to get away from the heat. But the flat roofs were made out of mud and stick and straw. And um, they went up there. And you can almost imagine the scene. As they're up there, Jesus is inside, he's preaching, and you almost kind of, you, you can see the scene. You, all of a sudden, the people in there start hearing a douche, douche, douche. And they look up, they see some flakes maybe falling down from the ceiling, and then some, some clumps of the straw and the, and the mud and the, and the um, sticks start coming. And maybe they put their hands above their head because stuff starts falling down. And all of a sudden, a hole in light opens from the ceiling, and through the efforts of these men, their friend gets down in front of Jesus. Now we have to ask, why did these friends go through all that trouble, through the risk of their lives, right? The, 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 the roof could have caved in. Through the risk of the shame of interrupting Jesus and in, in what he's doing, why were they, would they do all that? And I think the answer is because of the questions they were asking. What were the questions? The questions had to be, is it possible? Could it be true? Perhaps Jesus just might be able to heal, to do this. Maybe the stories are real. Now, if those are the questions, how does Jesus respond? I'll tell you how he doesn't respond. He doesn't say, hey, um, guys, dumb questions, move along. doesn't say that. I'll tell you how else he doesn't respond. He doesn't say, hey, you just kind of uh, blew up my, my friend's house. You know what? Wait your turn. He doesn't do that. No, he does two things almost immediately. First, he stops what he's doing, and he honors the questions that their very presence is asking. And, then, and this is where it meets us. If we're going to be a community that values questions and those who ask them, then we must do the exact same thing. That when, when people interrupt our lives, will we stop everything and respond to them? That's what Jesus does. He's in the middle of a whole speech. I mean, he was just talking, he was preaching, he was doing his whole thing, and he stops. Will we engage? Will we stop our lives? This is New York City. We're busy. There's always more work to be done. There's always more things to do. And yet, will we stop to listen to the questions that people have? Everyone has questions. Jesus values those questions, and he values the person behind those questions. I was working on this sermon last week, and uh, my youngest daughter, uh, she was reading this book, and she wanted to interact with me about it because she had questions about it. 
She, had, she wanted to see, the questions, it wasn't just about the book, it was, there was always questions, there's always questions beneath the questions. Will my dad interact with me? Will he see me as important? Will, will he value me more than he values his work? And of course, I'm asking questions of my work. And I was getting frustrated because I wanted to care about my questions and my work, not her questions. What about your coworkers' questions? What about your friend that's in your building that you see? Maybe not a friend. Maybe just the, the person in your building that you always see and you cross there's that awkward conversation. Hi, good, nice to meet you. See you later. Bye. What about that person that just moved to town? What about the, um, the person in the bodega that you always get your bagels from? Right? There are questions that they're asking and even if people can't verbalize that, this is what is important. I'm not talking about just verbal questions. The inaudible questions that are behind our actions, they're asking them, and will we be curious enough, will we care enough to, to engage and figure out what they're going, what's going on in there? Because here's one of my greatest worries about this, about this church, is that in Manhattan, Manhattan's an expert culture and therefore, we think we're supposed to have the answers to all the questions. And so we don't engage, we don't want to know the questions, because I'm worried if I hear them, I might not know the answer. Of course, Jesus made fisher men his disciples, right? I'm almost positive that the fishermen, when they were sent out, did not know the answer to the Trinity. I'm almost positive they had no answer for the Trinity. I'm almost positive they did not have the answer for every single question that was going to come their way, and it didn't matter. You know why? Because there's always the question beneath the question. There's always the, the interaction, the relationship. There's always more than just the question itself. And, the, and if they didn't need to have the answers to be sent out, why do we? We don't. First thing we see here is Jesus stops everything, honors the question that's innate in all people. Will we be the same? First thing. Now, the second thing that happens here that's very easy to miss, is Jesus is tender. Look at the phrase. It's in, it's in verse 2. He says, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, that phrase, take heart, we kind of, in English, we, we breeze right on by. But in Greek, it's a tender, tender term. It means to, um, to it, it's like my child, my darling. My, it's a term of endearment. It's a warmth. It's a tenderness. It's a kindness to a man he's never met before. To a dude who just blasted through the, wind, the, the ceiling. To a guy who was only in front of him because he wanted something from him. Is that your response to the people who bust into your life because they just want something from you? I'll tell you what, that's not my modus operandi. That's not how I work. And maybe it's the New Yorker in me, but it's kind of like that. Hey, you want something from me? I can't do it. But it's the, hey... You know, you want something from me? I can't, I, oh well, I can't. I, but you get the point. It's that sentiment of, of why are you bothering me? Why are you pushing yourself on me? Why are you demanding something from me? Right, there's almost like a New York kind of umbrage of like, you know, don't, no, you don't, you don't have that right. You don't get to do that. And yet Jesus is tender here. Jesus says, take heart. It, it's the very first thing he says to a stranger. And I wonder if that's our inclination. Is that our first inclination, to take heart? Dear, char dear darling, dear child, dear friend. See, he's not just valuing the question. He's doing it with a curiosity and a kindness and a tenderness that frankly is just breathtaking, considering the situation. That's the, what it means. If you want to know what does it mean to be driven to be uh, a, a people, a church that values questions and those who ask them, it's those two things. 
At LSQ, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service each week. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastor and church leaders. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for worship on Sunday. You can find out more details on our website by visiting lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash worship. Now, let's get back to this week's episode. Now, all right, the second thing we find here is while Jesus clearly engages with questions and those who ask them, I think the manner, the way he listens to those questions are, are radically countercultural and really, really important for us. What do, I, what do I mean by that? Go back to the text. Everybody in the room kind of already knew the question that was really going, that was being asked. Because when you bring a, 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 a paralyzed man in front of you, the question is the legs, right? You're going to heal the legs, right? You're going to fix this. Maybe this person had never been able to walk since birth. That, that was probably the case. That he'd been begging his whole life. That he can't support himself. He can't walk. He can't travel. He can't do anything for himself. And so this was clearly his biggest perceived need. He was saying, if I could just walk, if I could just have my legs, if I could just overcome my present circumstances, I'd have life. In all of our hearts, there's that thing that we say, if I could just have that thing, if, I, if this was just worked out, then everything would be okay. Everybody has that. We all have our versions of it. And Jesus looks at the man, and Jesus says, no. Now you can almost, I, I, for me, I, there's a befuddlement. After all this incredible effort, look at all the risk. I'm coming down from the, from the, the roof. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth in verse 2 is, your sins are forgiven. That's Jesus' answer. The legs, the legs, we're here for the legs. How countercultural. He hears the question and he gives an answer that isn't, it wasn't what he was asking, but it's, it was actually what he needed. How do I know that? If you go back to the Garden of Eden, Jeff already brought it up, the Garden of Eden um, in our call to worship. In the garden, what did you have there? You had, the, you had the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you had Adam and Eve. Do you think just one day they woke up and said, you know what, today, today, not God. Not, not interested in God today. I don't think that's what they did. I think the world is an uncertain space. It always has been uncertain. It might always be uncertain in some degree. And what happened was, they were uncertain about how their lives were going to go. They were afraid, and they chose the thing that they thought would give them more security. They chose the thing that they thought would give them more certainty, the knowledge of good and evil. And by the way, I think we all do this to different things. Because of the uncertainty of our lives, of New York, of the world, what we end up doing is we look for certainty where? In money, in power, in the ability to to make choices, in comfort, in families, in friends, in stuff. And yet what the story of the Bible is, is that there's actually only one really certain thing. The thing that we need most in the world is relationship with God, but you can't have that because that relationship is broken, and it's broken because what we've done is we've chosen things over God. 
Sin there, therefore, the definition of sin, if you need a translation, is, is it's choosing things, it's choosing the created over the creator. And so when Jesus shows up here and says, son, your sins are forgiven, he's actually saying something amazing. What he's saying is, the unspoken question beneath the question about the legs is, will you heal my life? That's what it was really being asked here. And Jesus is saying, I can heal your legs, but that wouldn't heal your life. That you need a deeper healing. That I know it's not what you're really asking for, but it is what you really need. And, and everybody is, he's saying the same thing to all of us here. Every single one of us. I know it's not what you're asking for, but it is what you really need. Now, pause for a second. Healing legs do matter. Having family does matter. Um, uh, having a job matters. Having health, if you're, un, if you're like, I just need health. I just want to wake up and not feel sick today. Matters. Those things matter. They all matter. But Jesus is pushing further because those things, as much as they matter, they can't heal your life. And he's saying, as important as you think it is for me to heal this man right now, as important as you think it is for me to heal your circumstances right now, there is nothing more important to you for me to say next then son your sins are forgiven and the question i guess <laughs> i'm asking myself is will i trust him enough will i trust that when he gives me the answer we need but not the answer we want that that's the right answer because what jesus is emphatically saying to everybody in the room then and i think everybody in the room here today and the man before him is you need a healed relationship with God more than you need healed legs. And that is hard. That is a hard thing to hear. But only in that healed relationship with all the other circumstances that are going on. Maybe if you had a healed relationship with God, you might not know why things are happening. You might not ever fully, those things might never fully make sense. But if you knew that you were loved, if you had this relationship you might not know why things are happening, but you know that you're loved, and that makes life certain in uncertainty. Ultimately, there's actually only one disease you can't come back from. There's only one ailment, there's only one crippling that you cannot come back from. That's the disease of sin and death, and Jesus has an answer for that, and he's desperate for you to get it. Now, again, does Jesus actually heal this man? Yes, he does. And this is where Christianity has always taught that the body does matter. So don't hear me say that. I'm not saying that. This life matters. The body matters. The natural world matters. And Jesus deals with disease and hurt and brokenness and justice. It, it all matters. Our deepest need is not the body, but the body matters. Can you hold those two things together? I think that's the problem, is we're not able to hold those two things together. That our deepest need is not the body, and yet the body matters. And yet Christianity has always been able to pull these things, keep these things together, where culture wants to pull them apart and say it's either only the body, it's the only thing that matters, or, or not the body, that's the only thing that matters. Christianity holds them together because Christianity keeps word and deed together. And what I think Jesus is trying to show us in this particular text is that what's primary is our relationship with him. 
And while I think that that matters, the order is important. It's important to also show you that the way God interacts with people isn't always in this order. If you go to John 9, you know what happens there? Jesus heals the person first before he gives the word. Right? Sometimes the deed needs to become before the word. Or go to uh, Paul, right? Paul's in jail, and he stays. He could have fled. There was an earthquake. All the jail cells open up. He could have run out, and he stays. And it was because that he stayed, the deed of staying allows the jailer to say, you've done this for me. Now I want to hear your word. And so the point is, sometimes we need to lead with deeds. Sometimes we need to lead with the word. Sometimes God heals you before he convicts you, and sometimes God needs to convict you before he heals you. Now, whatever those, however those, that interaction happens, go back to Jesus. He listens to the question, and he gets at the question beneath the question. I want to he- not just heal your legs, I want to heal your life. In fact, I want to heal your life, not just your legs. That's what Jesus is saying. I wonder, when we interact with people, when we, hear, when we value questions and those who ask them, Will we get at the question beneath the question? There's always one. Because I think the power comes when we value those questions and those who ask them and we go deeper underneath and if we did that, we would be doing something that nobody else in this culture does. We would be doing something that nobody else does. Conservatives feel like they're not being heard. Progressives in, our, in, in uh, the city uh, feel like they're not understood. And Christianity has the, the ability to enter into any modern political ideology and value the questions that are being asked behind each one. And therefore, we, we should never let evangelism, the good news, push out mercy and justice, but we should never let mercy and justice move us away from and cloud the ultimate good news that people need to hear. That would be countercultural if we hold those things together. And this is what's really difficult because we're physical manifestations were in space and so the minute I open my mouth right when you say women's ministry matters then all of a sudden you say so I guess men don't no that's the problem is that you only say one thing at a time but we have to hold these things together in powerful ways how is that going to happen last point fueled by forgiveness this is the last point and look at look at our text after the forgiving of the sins here Jesus has this like kind of trick question in verse 5 Knowing their thoughts in verse 4, he says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Which is actually kind of, you know, let's actually play that out. Which one is easier? And I think what a lot of people would say, what's easier just to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because, you know, a miracle is a miracle. That's what you think is happening at first. But what does Jesus do? Look closely. What does Jesus do? When he says get up, that's a declarative statement. That's a command and an action happens out of it. But when he says your sins are forgiven, that too is a declarative statement with an action after it. And so actually, the answer is both are actually impossible. And yet, when you say your sins are forgiven, I mean, you have to, you have to kind of pause there too and say, wait a second, you can't forgive somebody's sin unless that sin is actually done against you. If Bob is up here and I intentionally hurt Bob, Cynthia over there can't say, Michael, I forgive you for what you did to Bob. It doesn't work. That never, it never works that way. Bob's going to be like, hey, this is between me and Michael, and he has not actually fixed whatever he did. And so you can, because only Bob in that moment can actually forgive me. Ergo, if Jesus is saying, son, your sins are forgiven, hear the amazing statement behind that. What he's saying is all 
brokenness, all sin, which is what? It's taking these other things and using them for certainty over certainty with him. What he's saying is that these things are actually ultimately against me, and I can forgive you. And this is where we need to pause. Because again, life here moves fast in New York. Do we really believe that Jesus forgives you of anything? Anything. So I think, I think there are the, the secret things that we bury that we don't even want to look at ourselves. There's the things that we haven't told anybody else. There's the, um, the ways we've messed up in a million different ways. And he looked at you. That's what this text is saying. He can look at you and say, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. I forgive you. And I haven't just forgive you what you've done in the past. I forgive you and what you will do. I forgive you of the things you don't even quite fully understand what you have done. And all you have to do is say, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. That's all you have to do. Now, if you're listening right now and not zoning out, you should be saying, wait a second. That guy, the guy in this text doesn't say that. The guy in the text doesn't say, Jesus, forgive me. How's that possible then? And I think this is actually the best part of the whole text is that we're told in verse 4, knowing their thoughts, clearly Jesus has this intuition and ability to, to perceive and know what's actually going on. And if in the Bible it's true that there's no forgiveness without repentance, and he can know people's thoughts, then it's reasonable to assume somehow Jesus must have perceived some kind of micro-feeling going on in this man's heart. Some sort of micro-repentance in this man that maybe he couldn't even verbally express. That even though he was clearly, clearly thinking about his legs, Jesus is falling over himself to give you the mercy and forgiveness that you can't even quite gutterly utter vocally. That's impressive. That's amazing. And I, I, this whole week I've been melted by the kind of movement that the slightest, op- all you have to do is give the slightest opening in your life to him and taste for a moment that even our imperfect, misaligned reasons, his desire to love you at complete cost to you, and the knowledge of that is a life-changing, life-transforming truth. That when his legs were nailed immobile on the cross, he did it so that our legs one day would be mobilized again in this life and the next. That's the power that he died for you before you even really knew what you needed. He forgave you even before you fully understood your need for forgiveness. And only if you see yourself as forgiven, does that not just give us the power to release others of what they've done to us and the people have done lots of things to us, but it also gives us the drive to do so. And how's that possible? It's, it's, it's really simple when you get down to it. Think of all the stuff that you don't show other people. And you know what I'm talking about. Think of the shame. Think of the guilt. Think of the striving. Think of the insecurity. Think of the uncertainty. Think of the, um, you know, why do we put earbuds in when we go on the subway? Why do we not want to ever be alone with our thoughts? It's because we're worried that if we did listen to ourselves, we we would hear some sense that things aren't quite what they should be or some sense that things are wrong. And yet, even though we have that, if we knew true and real forgiveness, that we had, our relationship with God was right, 
then that means then the only eyes of the universe whose opinion really ultimately matters, we're beautiful in, in those eyes. We are seen as lovely in those eyes. In other words, all the other eyes of the world that you might be vying for and comparing yourself and wanting, eyes of approval, eyes of, of romantic love, eyes of, 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 wow, you really are something, eyes of comfort. The only eyes that really matter are his eyes. And if we have those eyes in his heart, we're going to have a deep healing. Not the healing of all the hurts of our circumstances, but the healing of our heart. And you know what you can do if you have that? Anything. Guess what you could do? You probably, for the first time, could probably listen to somebody. I'm a terrible listener because I'm always listening, so I know what to say next. That's not, that's not listening. But if you had this peace and security where you don't need to prove yourself anymore, guess what? You could just listen to hear the person on the other side of that voice. Here's another thing. How about, you know what forgiving people can do? Forgiving people are secure. If life is insecurity, uncertainty, forgiveness means now you have relationship with the source of all hope and truth and beauty and love, and that brings deep certainty and deep security despite the uncertainty of the world. So much so that if we had this, we could value questions and the people who ask them. That's what it means to be fueled by forgiveness. It's the engine, it's the power. I promise you, in the next 50 years, Christianity will go so far in this country as we live out as forgiven people, forgiving, loving, and serving. And getting to the questions beneath the question. Um, there's a book. It's a I think it's more of a, 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 it's a, a teen fiction book called Ready Player One. It was made into a movie by Spielberg a couple years ago. It's, I've seen it on Netflix and stuff like that. And um, it's, it's about some future dystopian world. It's what everybody's writing those things now. But uh, it's about how everybody is linked into this, this, uh, this meta, I mean, sorry, this oasis. Um, you have to get that, you have to get that. Some people who know what's going on with Facebook. Um, everybody's linked to oasis. It's this online community, virtual world, where guess what? You can be anything and everything. You can choose your character. You can look a certain way and act a certain way, and you can be whoever you want to be. But what I love about the book, it doesn't really come out in the movies, but what I love about the book is there's this great angst among the main characters because how do you have relationships with people who don't fully know who you really are? And in fact, you're not allowed to tell people who you really are because if you do, if they know your name, if they know where you live, they can manipulate you and they can blackmail you and they can get to you. And so this whole thing of like, I can't let people fully know who I am. So you just can, all you can know is my online pers- persona. But because of that, in some ways it's very freeing because you can be whatever you want. And yet at the same time, it's very sad and very alone. Because even though you can say whatever you want and you can be whatever you want, nobody really knows you. Nobody can really love you. Nobody can really care for you. And the whole book basically is this main character who tells this girl he loves, he tells her, her his real name, he exposes himself and says, I don't care what you look like in the real world. I don't care what, how you're formed. I don't care what your, your rough edges are. I love you. And she at first is just, you know, she can't believe that he would do this. But because he did, you know what it does? It changes her. The scars that she had didn't matter. What she looked like didn't matter in real life. Her idiosyncrasies, her foibles, her rough edges. And she was loved. 
And here's what's amazing. If we know that that kind of unconditional love in a teen fiction book can transform you, how much more could we be transformed if in real the personal cosmic love of Jesus Christ who made that first move, whose legs were made immobile so our legs could be remobilized, if that love, that unconditional love was worked into our lives, it would change us even more. It would transform us even more that you are absolutely a beauty now. Do you believe that? Do you let that sit in your life that you are worth for him to go through heaven and hell? It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you should have done or could have done or would have done. Absolutely, fully valued. Seen you at your worst and loved you to the best. To heal you, he was harmed. To lift you up, he was pushed down. If, if we got that, guess what? We would stop seeking those other certainties. We would stop looking to them. They would be goods. They would be good things. Family, money, power. Those are good things if we wield them in the right order. And if he can take our most guttural desires and, and use those as the basis to forgive us and love us, we can come to him with our fragmented, half-hearted, unutterable thoughts about grace. And he would grant it to us. Let's rest in that love. And if we did that, we wouldn't need pieces of paper to validate us. We wouldn't need to make a name for ourselves. We wouldn't need to over-desire these comforts and things. It would melt away so we'd be free to love and serve and be. Last thing I'll say is this. This man's friends, what did they do? They did everything and anything to get this man in front of Jesus. They actually didn't even know what this man really needed, but they know that he needed Jesus. Would we be those friends to other people? It means carving out time for them. It means spending time with people we don't fully get. What are those questions? I don't even understand them. What's the question underneath the question? Let's get people before Jesus and help our hurting friends find him. Your security is secure. Your uncertainty is certain. We now have the bandwidth to listen and seek and serve and stay and be still in his wonder of his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess I do not do this well. When people want something from me, I, I, the, block, the roadblocks go up. Too busy. I'm too, I, I, I'm too full. I have too, I have too many other things to do. I pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, carve out space in our lives. And the way you do that, Father, is we let the security of the death and resurrection of your son permeate the infrastructure that we've built around our hearts that have kept you at bay, that does not listen to and, and sit in and soak up the sweetness of your desire to come after us, Father, where you could have wiped us away, you could have started all over, you said you are worth, you are worth it. I pray everybody in this room would get that. If we did, Father, we could live out this value to be a church, not just for ourselves, for others, known, loved, and cared for, and to value questions in those who ask them. I pray that these would not just be words on a paper, but these would motivate us and move us and energize our imaginations. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. 
We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.